0: Hello, this is Dr. John Peebles. Thank you for joining us in these high altitude conversations, where we have the chance to talk to the decision makers, the people at the top, the chairs and the chief executives who've made the decisions that affect our organizations and indeed often our very way of life. I hope that listening to them and their thoughts as they articulate problem and solution provides something for you to reflect on and perhaps utilize or model in your own management style or approach. These people are recognised as our top problem solvers and the one feature they all have in common is recognised management success in organisations of substance. Our guest today is a woman who has made New Zealand her home and is the chief executive of a very prominent Auckland entity in transformation. As a young girl in Barbados, she was sent to boarding school in England at the age of eight for first encounters with cold temperatures and kippers before moving to Canada. She worked in broadcasting, hospitality, sales and marketing and investment management handling a widely spread family investment portfolio. Her introduction to this country saw her start work with a bankrupt hotel which led to the role of Director of Sales and then Deputy General Manager of the Christchurch Town Hall and Convention Centre where she took responsibility for sales, marketing, events, facilities and IT. She drove a loss of eight million dollars into profit transforming the business in structure and focus. She developed her own investment and advisory business, served as an independent director, and in 2012 joined the Auckland Trotting Club as Chief Executive Officer, a role she currently holds. With assets of 250 million and a staff of around 300, she runs racing, hospitality, gaming, retail, and property development on a significant site in the country's major city, with strategy and financial responsibility for the largest brownfield development in Auckland. It is, by any terms, a major transformation program in action. Dominic Darting, welcome to High Altitude, and thank you for putting aside the time to talk with us. Dominic, firstly, explain a little bit about your background as a girl in Barbados and encounters with those kippers, please.
1: (laughs) Well, my family actually was one of the first settlers to Barbados in the 1600s. And then what happened is, is that my grandfather and grandmother got married and his father had actually been a grocer who then went on to own a majority of the plantations on the island and got into sugar and molasses production. And then what turned around and happened is they parlayed that into a transport business and all of us were actually educated overseas because that was seen to be a better qualification to run the family business. So I went off to England and that's where I experienced those bloody kippers.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How old were you when they sent you to England? I presume boarding school.
1: Eight, yes. So daddy said, oh, I've got great news. You're going to um, England for Christmas. And I went, yay, how exciting. And then he said, you're staying and you're going to boarding school. And then my first day they gave me kippers for breakfast and I wouldn't eat them. So they then proceeded to give me kippers for lunch, dinner the next day until I finally had to eat them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And do you still eat them or don't you. No, can't stand them. <laughs> <laughs> so, talking beyond there, how long did you spend in boarding school in Britain?
1: Um, one year, and then I got a telex. Um, because in those days it was a telex and or telegram or whatever it was called. And um, Daddy had moved to Canada. He had had a big fight with my grandfather, and they'd split up as far as you know being in the family business. And and so we moved to Vancouver, and um, I basically did my formal education in Vancouver.
0: And a bit of surfing as well on the way through?
1: Surfing, when I graduated, I went down to La Jolla and I met a promoter and he very nicely let me work under the table and I was helping him with his bands and touring his acts and things like
0: that. No green card at that No green card, (laughs)
1: just helping a poor, struggling student.
0: (laughs) Now, obviously something brought you to New Zealand or attracted you here, so was that a hard decision, and and how did you get here?
1: Um, I married a New Zealander who I'd met actually in Vancouver because I'd been working in a lot of different areas. I worked in a stock market, I worked in entertainment. I also then ended up owning a whole pile of restaurants across North America. And then what turned around and happened is we moved to New Zealand because that was where his business was, and he was a big inbound tour operator. And, um, and yes, it was a bit of a shock, to be quite honest, because I'd been used to running my own businesses, and I had to downgrade my um, resume to basically become Sally Sales Rep in order to meet everybody and start networking and growing my business from there
0: and so the first major role in christchurch uh, was a significant events and marketing role wasn't it so what was it like, the Town Hall and Convention Centre at Christchurch when you joined it?
1: Well, stepping one step back, I actually started in a hotel that was in bankruptcy with no bookings whatsoever for six months. Right. And I had the bank coming in every week um, saying, you know, have you actually earned more money? Have you earned more money? And um, and so as a result of turning that around within basically five to six months, um, the council came to me and said, look, we've got this um, entertainment centre and it's basically $7 million in debt. And we think that you would be a really really good asset for the sales and marketing role. So I said, great, fantastic, I'm in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what was it like when you got there?
1: I've always been in a commercial background, and I've always come from a family business that was very commercial. So to walk into a council-owned entity in the you know in the late eighties was a shock to me because it was very I never heard of morning tea and afternoon tea and lunches because in Canada we work through all of that right. you know. So it was quite interesting concept to be in the council system.
0: And was it bureaucratic? You're used to making your own decisions in a family business, right?
1: Time. Very, and um, and on top of that, because they were funded by council, they didn't actually really care about making a profit. So imagine just sitting there and everybody's just (laughs) earning their paycheck and they don't really care about any outcomes. So that was a total shock to me. Mm. And
0: were you given a brief, a specific brief they wanted to? Yeah,
1: they basically wanted me to turn around the sales and marketing department to earn and increase more revenue and to try and get more volume coming through to the facility.
0: Did they expect it to make profit?
1: Um, No, they didn't. And that's a bit of an indictment on councils when they own public amenity facilities. I always kept on being told, oh, they never make money, they never make money. But if you take a business context to anything that you do, whether it be the arts or whether it be, you know, public facilities or whether it be business, you'll always make that business sustainable because it has to pay its own way so we managed to do that eventually
0: how did you look at strategically at it did you and what did you have to make happen
1: Uh, The first and foremost thing is it wasn't a customer-facing type organization. So what turned around and happened is if you called me for a sale, you know, to book my venues, you would have to go through seven different departments. So you would start with me to say, is the date available? And then you would go to the theater department to book all your technical. Then you would go to the food and beverage department and so and so on. So what I did is I centralized. I'm a big centralization type person. I don't believe in complicated structures for the customer to deal with. So we pulled everything into one central bureau, being the sales department. And then what I did is I got Ernst & Young in to try and work out how much was it costing us to open up this facility every day. And that was a fascinating exercise because we then overlaid that against what is the market actually charging and where's our gap. And so from there, what I did is packaged my rates to be more attractive against a hotel who would throw in their venues or, um, you know, at some other sort of function center that would actually be a competitor. And that's when I invented a three time zone rate to try and get us to move more volume through the channel.
0: Was there a budget at all when you walked in? no.
1: No, and there was no marketing budget. They didn't even know really what marketing was, which was even more fascinating. So how did you go about it? What did you start with? Um, well, as I said, we started with the package rates. Then what I did is identified where our market was. So I literally called on every single business in Christchurch to begin with, because if you have your local base business, that's your bread and butter. And then what we did is we expanded out to Wellington Auckland and Auckland, and that was so funny because I had to fight the council to be able to go traveling to Wellington or Auckland to make sales because they didn't understand what sales was in a council system so it was really quite fascinating time (laughs) and then um, I ended up going to Australia and that's when it got even more hysterical because they wanted me to sit in a hotel in um, King's Cross for $25 and I said to my city manager at the time look I'm prepared to do a lot for the job but one thing I'm not prepared to do is be in King's Cross (laughs) so he started laughing and accepted that.
0: So where did you Finish up and which hotel did well, you get I to?
1: ended up getting to stay at the Park roll, which is a much better look. Yes. Well done.
0: So then. After that period, you were there for, for a number of years, weren't you?
1: Right, I um, spent eight years of my life there, and basically what we tried to do was bring the volume. I believe that when you have any asset, what you're trying to do is constantly make sure it's turning over as far as um, the rentable space. And off of that rentable space, you should be getting all the additional um, incomes and revenues, such as food and beverage, technical, whatever it might be. So we did that very well, and we ended up being actually the best in the country to overseas conventions and um, a whole pile of stats that we actually achieved and accomplished in entertainment, in the mice industry, meetings, incentives, conventions, and exhibitions, and then in general, just, uh, you know, dinners and functions and bowls. And they made good money in the finish. Yeah, um, we actually turned it around to be four million in profit. Which you know, by the time we got there, it was such a big achievement because it's quite hard to take a, a community-based organization that also has to act as a commercial entity and balance those two.
0: Mm. Mm. And that led on to the current role. I take it, does Auckland Trotting Club.
1: Yes. Well, that was really funny because I just um, finished. I invented a trade in collaborations. Um, uh, system for APEC. And so I was working with the new and renewable energy expert group and had to travel all over the APEC region selling that trade and collaboration system for science and research. And what turned around and happened is the earthquake hit. And um, I thought to myself, what am I going to do next? And um, a friend of mine phoned me, and he had always been trying to get me up to Auckland. And he said, look, a really, really clever man is now taking over the Auckland Trotting Club. I think you should go for the role. Well, naturally, I just started laughing my head off because why would they ever hire a woman to do the role? Not that I'm a genderist, but, you know, you have to be realistic. So I ended up, um, he gave me the name of the people and he said please 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 go for it you'll enjoy the experience and i did and then i got shortlisted so i went for the interview and got the job
0: (laughs) so talk about what it was like when you walked into it i mean what was the trotting club what sort of shape was it in
1: oh my god it was just so sad um The asset is one of the most prettiest assets in um, Auckland, in my opinion. It's um, covered by the cones, you know, the St. John's, the Mount Eden cones, and and then one tree hill behind us, which is now uh, Mangakiki, you know, hill. So... What we turned around and did is I looked at it some um, significance in the respect of being near the city and near the airport, but it was like Bosnia. It was so run down due to deferred maintenance, 16 million of deferred maintenance when I walked in. Um, nobody had taking care of the old girl you know she was really run down Um, the business itself was there to purely um, sink any money it made into stakes and racing and and there was no ethos about making the business healthy and making the venue healthy so that we could create more profits to reinvest in racing
0: with 50 odd hectares in the central city area They must have had some worries about where the future was, did they? Yeah, it's quite
1: interesting. It's 16.5 in Epson, and then we have 35 in Pukekohe. And that came in later into the portfolio. But there was no plan for the asset at all when I arrived. So what we set about doing is doing a master plan for the entire property property. portfolio. And um, and then from there, what I did is I peeled it back to Green Lane West, because we already had a title of three hectares that I could develop quite quickly and change the zoning quite quickly. And that's where we developed the urban village for that three
0: hectare property. So what's been developed during your time? What's actually gone in there?
1: Okay, well um, the first one was the Blues and so we built them an almost 2,000 square metre office and um, they now train in the middle of our infield and and that's been a fantastic partnership between the Blues organisation and the club. And we did that because we wanted to show that we're equally a professional sport and, and so are they and so that was a big tick on that one. The second thing we did is we amalgamated with a club in Franklin and we actually um got the 35 hectares down in Franklin and so what I did there was ensure that I could actually return that to future urban if I needed to in the future and so we did a special zoning of equine precinct to protect it and then told the council that if we ever had to sell it then we would move to uh, future urban. Um, then the big one was turning this 3 hectare um, property that we had up in Epson into a lifestyle village and that probably was the most exciting project. It's 35,000 square meters of of land that's, or sorry, 1.8 hectares, but 45,000 square meters of building. And we built um, 246 apartments and 5,000 square meters of retail.
0: Is in the apartments, it's solely owned apartments, is it?
1: Right, so one of the things that I found when I first got there is the constitution doesn't allow me to sell land. So I had to come up with a strategy whereby we still retain some of the land, but then we were selling our airspace and I made the airspace the selling story. So what we turned around and did also is we did a deep dive of our uh, demographics and psychographics of the catchment area, 3Ks to 5Ks out, and what we found was I had a lot of empty nesters, downsizers, and also young urban professionals. So they didn't want shoebox type accommodation. And we wanted to make sure that we weren't selling shoeboxes. And so the point of difference we did was our apartments were anything from 110 square meters up to 256 square meters. It's a big apartment. Very. And so what we did from there is we sold the airspace, so freehold titles on the 246 apartments. But then we kept the retail. And so we have 20 retail um, units and those will all be operating and then we'll be collecting a rental return on that.
0: And Have you started selling the apartments as yet?
1: We sold out. We sold out over a year ago.
0: So they're completely sold out. Yeah. Looking back on it, did you get the prices you wanted?
1: Um I absolutely did because um, I believed in my product. Absolutely. And, um, and everybody said I was too expensive and all the rest of it. But as it transpired, I had the sweet spot quite right. And I did a lot of work on that. So that was exciting. So yeah. what's, the,
0: what's the average apartment? Two bathrooms and th- two bedrooms? or what?
1: Yes, um, we had a predominancy of two plus bedrooms um, because that tends to be what people like to move into. They want to have space. They want to be able to have the grandkids or the kids or their family come and visit or what have you. It's
0: not a retirement style village, though. No. It? It's, it's a straight owned apartment.
1: No. And here's another thing that shows how good our marketing was as far as our um, data that we had collected and how we positioned was that 33% of our market was uh, 60 plus. 33% of our market was 45 to 50 or 55. And then the rest was 35 and above. So it's a really nice blended community. And also with our cultures, it's very blended. There's not one predominant culture in the units.
0: And the views are where? Which way does it look?
1: Oh, fantastic. Above level four, you can see north facing, you can see Rangitoto, the whole harbour. But as you get up higher, you have a better vista of the city and and obviously the sea and then when you face south you get the beautiful aspect of cornwall um, park and then overlooking um, manukau harbour so it's a really special special unique development
0: and are the residents in at the stage or are they
1: no no they won't be in until 2019
0: so it's quite a long-term project, isn't yes, it?
1: Yes, um, yes. And
0: what about the retail below? What, what What's the facilities in the retail space below? Um,
1: we have a grocer that's doing a very new-age, contemporary-type grocery offering. Um, that's Fresh Choice. We have a pharmacy. We have a gym. And then in the other buildings, we have mainly hospitality operators like Lone Star, Madame Wu's, um, a number of Joe's Garage and ASB Bank. And, and so we're really starting to get a really nice blend of different types of products product for our, our customers.
0: Is car parking an issue? You
1: no, we actually added more car parking. So we have two level of basements underground. And that was the big challenge in this development is we were, because we're in a volcanic cone, we hit a lot of caverns and and voids and things like that, which made the development very difficult. And
0: with not being able to sell land and selling the, the airspace above, there would have been capital coming into the club, then I take it at that stage, as well as there's going to be is there a, a rental of some sort as well uh, each year or rate um,
1: not to the freehold apartments um, we just sold those completely for our profit that we made off of that apartment right. but um but for the retail definitely i mean obviously we're getting extremely good rents again everybody said there's no way you're going to be able to get this sort of rent out there but we have we've been really successful with it
0: now, that's obviously been a, a, a big win for the club to actually put that in because they run how many race meetings a year?
1: 41.
0: 41. When you think of the central city and 41 race meetings, it yes, seems a very light use of the land, doesn't it, in yes. the area? So what else is around there?
1: So then what we have is we actually have our own venues. So we have a function center that has eight rooms that can sit anything from 50 people up to 2,500. We also have a bar restaurant, um, which seats about 300 people. And then we have a gaming room. We're the only club to have a class Four gaming license in New Zealand. So that's very exciting. And then we also have the largest selling TAB. But I also have nine um, leases in place already so we have the Burger King and the Caltechs on Manukau Road, those are my clients and that's our land um, the Blues is obviously a tenant and then we have a daycare a Sport Auckland, the biggest yum cha in, and the best Yumcha cha in Auckland, um, the Grand Park and then um, we have our constructor who's obviously on one of the buildings.
0: So what proportion of the total revenue comes out of your land and buildings and if we look at it as opposed to the harness racing Association. uh
1: harness is only 38% and that percentage is actually lowering as i develop more and more the business into being a property development company landlord and obviously hospitality and entertainment business
0: that must be bring its own pressures from a board and a management point of view as you, as the harness racing becomes less of a feature of the revenues. So what does it do with that? How does the board cope with that as they go through?
1: Um, It is a a quite odd position because some days we're a racing club first is what they'll say to you and then the next day it'll be we're a business first. The fact is we went on a strategy Kerry Hoggard and myself that the business needed to flip the table. We were no longer a racing club. We were a business first who had to derive serious profits to be reinvested into racing as opposed to being raped and pillaged in order to you know, reinvest
0: into racing. So strategically, where does it go from here? We're, we're looking ahead and, and what, what are the thoughts? What's uh, the next decade look okay, like?
1: Okay, of... um, if I had my way, and I can only speak on my way because, you know, there's an election every year and that's probably one of the the biggest strategic risks of our business. So it's
0: an elected board as opposed to an appointed board.
1: Correct. And so it's only
0: got a one-year tenure?
1: Well, some do. We changed the constitution last year because I said to them, we couldn't keep on running a business like this. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we actually went to five, we're going from seven uh, directors down to five that are member elected. And those directors will have terms of three plus three plus three. And then they'll decide who the actual chair is out of them. And then we have the ability to go up to three independent directors.
0: Mm-hmm. And what sort of skill sets would you need to add into that? Surely there must be some thinking about that is our most serious and risk. And... Yeah,
1: um, that is a big risk for us because the club doesn't have a lot of people with those skills and skills for large-scale development. Remember, we're the largest brownfield development in Auckland. So, and the the vision for the future is to develop a further three hectares that we still have on that frontage into more and more of a village. And so for that, um, and I'm speaking for myself now, not for the club, I believe that there does need to be a chasm that we have to cross, whereby a commercial property board needs to now come into the the um, business and look after the property portfolio and more importantly the investment of the profit that we gain from this development so that we can actually start growing our principal and and creating more and more um, revenue for the club.
0: Yes, and I mean it is at the end of the day for the club, isn't it? Correct. So the investment is, is to cunningly manage it commercially correct. as best you can for the best return, but the club is still the ultimate owner and, and uh, arbiter isn't it? Correct, yeah. correct. So it's a Um, this year when you look at it, has the board got thoughts to increase the harness racing side of it or will it stay at around 41 meetings a year? It'll
1: always stay at around 41 meetings a year Um, it's just to be honest I think it's too much racing but that is what we need to do in order for broadcast and our commitment to the racing board. Um, The other area that we're looking at is Franklin because again we have future urban all around us and it's all been bought out by some of our top developers in Auckland so we have a real strategic need to start thinking about well in two to three years time if these people. Start developing. They're not going to want a, a training centre on their back doorsteps. So where do we go, and what does that look like, and and how big do we go? You know, to sustain the industry moving forward.
0: There's some quite big strategic decisions for the board to make, isn't that Very. So, in terms of looking at that, um, if you were looking at it in a ten year time, could you see it still operating in in Auckland?
1: Um, you know, it's so fascinating because a lot of my members think that I'm into just selling the asset and and moving them somewhere else because that is what they did in Mel- in um, in Sydney. You know, they had Harold Park, they sold Harold Park for hundreds of millions of dollars, and then moved out to Melton. Um, I think that we have to be pragmatists, that eventually urban sprawl will put some demand on the property and the asset, and therefore the club will have to face a paradox of, do they move because we're now a broadcast-only product, which has been proven overseas to be what happens once you know the decline can't be stemmed anymore? Or do we stay and just continually develop around us, and then eventually have to move to do the inside of it?
0: When you talk of a broadcast-only product, you're talking on- of a dwindling physical audience, are you, and more people watching online or watching? Oh hotels. no, um,
1: economically within the whole ecosystem of the racing environment, our breeding numbers are down, our ownership numbers are down, our trainers are all in their 50 plus age group, so they're going to be retiring in droves. We have no new young people coming in and this is a really serious concern. So so the issue is how do we reinvigorate a dying you know, racing industry. And the only way that we think about in management is trying to come up with maybe not 10 races a night, maybe it should only be three to five races, who knows, you know, maybe we could intersperse more entertainment in the actual racing product, as opposed to around us, which we generate a lot of theme nights and a lot of events and activities around our assets. So, yeah, it's a really interesting dilemma. And we're at this as I said, this chasm that we all have to
0: cross. You'd have looked overseas at the similar situations. What are they doing to cope with it? Because they must be getting it earlier than you're getting it, are they?
1: Yes, and um, really interestingly enough, when I first started um, in Canada, for instance, they were building casinos in racetracks, and then those funds were funding the racing. But really people were inside betting while the races were just happening outside for TV, and that's for obviously gambling on the TV, right? So... Um, but now I've been hearing more and more that they're doing exactly what we're doing in the, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere, which is taking our asset, putting something that will attract people back to the asset and hopefully back to racing, and even if it's in a passive way. And so um, you have Brisbane doing a village development like mine. You have one in Sydney doing a another village development like mine. So it's it's great. I mean, it's great that we're using our asset responsibly.
0: So how does the harness racing industry? itself though deal with what's going on in, a, in an industry that's obviously withering a little bit and whether it'll die or not who knows but is it withering overseas or is it
1: yes it is it is worldwide and you know the only thing i'm um, growing really is the french you know with the Monty type racing which is as uh, similar to a, a gallop racing but with more a uh, trotting or pacing type you know um gait. but um it is a challenge and our industry is very nervous about everything but the Auckland Trotting Club has decided that stakes is the panacea to helping owners get a better return, which will then help them buy more horses, which will then get trainers more horses to train, and we'll have more horses at the track. Is
0: it different to the gallops in terms of the harness side and the sense of that? Are they, are they... No,
1: thoroughbreds are in as big a problem as us.
0: So is there amalgamation coming? Can you see places where the sort of centres some... would amalgamate? I There's think been think talk. we have got Ellerslie of... only you know, two miles away.
1: Yeah. Um, Interestingly enough, the, um, the racing board under Michael Ciasny, um actually wanted to do one racing, whereby harness and thoroughbreds would share the same track. The problem that you face is, It's like a family business. I mean, it's worse than my family, really, because at the end of the day, they're very, very parochial and they're very, very tied. And remember, a lot of these people have been going to that track since they were three or four. So it's a memory with dad or granddad or whoever they had in their lives, and they don't want to see their club (laughs) going anywhere. So that's the biggest fight that everybody has right now.
0: Is it sustainable in the longer term, the Trotting Club?
1: Um, I think uh, we are. Mm-hmm. You know, we definitely are. And this is the absolute reason why we did what we did is because we wanted to be in control of our own destiny. And if we have the riches and the wherewithal, then we can always be running some form of racing. We, the only problem that we have is the licenses come from the racing board. And if they want to force you, they can revoke your license. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is you cease to exist. So the asset goes back to the code. So therein lies a very interesting legal kind of dilemma that I'm now trying to see, well, is that fair? You know, if I wanted to exist on my own and I was happy and I have the the funds and the wherewithal, why should I be forced off my site, you know, if I don't want to go.
0: So is there a legal requirement for them, it?
1: Yes, there is right now. Yeah. It's, it's very it's, fascinating.
0: How do, how do the young the other clubs get on down country in Harness? They must be really struggling because they don't have the city density around them. Well, Harness they, the sort of is more doing.
1: popular in the South Island and is actually in better shape in the South Island than it is in the North Island. But I always say that we've caught the cold and they're going to get the flu eventually. Right. So um, there's very few of us that own our own land. Um, there a lot of the sites are actually either reserves or council owned or you know something like that so, We really have to develop, and Addington started developing commercially around their site. We've chosen uh, urban development because we felt that was better to bring new audiences and new people, and also to have residents that would be there day in and day out, possibly utilising our services.
0: Now with the other three hectares that you've got available, where, where are you going with that?
1: Well, again, um, we have already master-planned it, so we're going to be building more um, residential apartments. We're going to be putting um, another 25,000 square metres of retail in. Um, we're going to be redoing our venue. And, um, and yes, yeah, so we're just excited to transform, change, and grow.
0: So this is a plan that goes over how long in, in the next...
1: It'll probably, if, if the, and there is the dilemma too, if you've got a membership-appointed board... They may stop all this. Right. And so it is at the prerogative of the members to decide whether I go into a development or not. And every stage has to be approved by my membership. Right. So if it all stopped, then
0: it stops. Is it a me- membership in total that can vote on this? Yes. Rather than a board commercially doing it? Yes.
1: Directed? And so... At the end of it, we have a plan right now that if the membership adopted it, it goes out for another ten years, and then we have completely transformed the frontage.
0: Right, and do you have to present to the membership as a as a as a full membership body?
1: Oh yes. Um. So when we um, if if I can tell you the story, it's actually quite fascinating. So when we decided to go and do the development, we had to actually create a whole document explaining what the development was about, why we were doing it, um, what the returns were going to be, the whole nine yards. And then we had to go through a series of workshops, and then we had to present to the members and take their questions. And, and there was some that thought we were going to fail, that there was no way anybody would want to buy an apartment at Alexander Park. I mean, I had it all. But in the end, 99% of my members voted for it. And thank God they did because it is our lifeline going forward and it will make a difference and transform our business.
0: How long did it take to sell off all the apartments? And...
1: Um, it took us about 18 months.
0: That's not too bad. No, is no, standard. considering
1: the amount of apartments we had.
0: So if we look at, um, say, some of the models offshore, just going beyond just the development side mm-hmm. of it, Are there any that are really leading the chase that you're looking at and saying, gee, that's really interesting. There's a harness club that's really doing something.
1: Not harness, but definitely you have to look at Hong Kong as being really the best in the world. I mean, yeah, but... They have a, a market that's in demand and that want to be part of the Hong Kong Jockey Club in order to be an owner, and and the Chinese love to bet. So so they have an, an almost an ecosystem that works, <laughs> whereas I don't think I could do that here. It wouldn't
0: work. What's happening to the betting system here? Is it rising or falling in terms of the total amount put forward onto it? Uh, declining. Declining.
1: And again, um, I think... You know, the thing that really really hurt racing is when we actually had the advent of cable TV and we started professionalizing our sports. And so what turned around and happened is 22 professional sports arrived and all of a sudden we were campaign, uh, competing for the entertainment dollar. Then we started building better entertainment venues and now we're having acts that are coming through almost every week. So that's taking more and more of that surplus income or discretionary income out. So It's hurting betting. It's hurting, you know, um, everything to do with racing. But the interesting thing is sports betting is on the rise.
0: Yes. So a few years ago, you could never have bet on the All Blacks, for example, but you can today. Mm. Whereas you would have had to have gone to horse racing or or dog racing probably, wouldn't you?
1: Correct. Isn't that interesting? Yes. It changes
0: quite a bit. So in the whole of this, what's been the hardest thing to get to grips with from your point of view?
1: Definitely... A membership-based, cooperative-type environment versus a commercial, agile, quick-thinking, quick-moving environment was my biggest challenge to learn. Um, I always say when I take a job, um, look, if you want a maintaining CEO, I'm not that girl. I'm a very game-changing, fast-moving girl. And when I mean fast, I mean fast. So if you can be prepared for me to move quickly, then we'll have a great relationship and I'll make you a lot of money. But if you don't, then it can be very frustrating and it slows me down.
0: So with six years behind you in the club and you're looking forward to the next stage of development, what will that do? Will that keep you locked in for the next six years doing it?
1: I'm a girl motivated by challenge, but... To do a development, I mean, this was a big undertaking for me. You know, remember, I'm the developer in this, as well as running a $25 million club. So I have businesses that are 24-7 plus this development, which is my baby. And so I think um, if I was to go forward, I'm always keen for the challenge as long as we are developing. And as long as I have the right chairman and board backing me in order to actually do this sort of development it's very
0: challenging and it's very taxing events and functions in this whole thing must be really quite difficult to manage going forward are they the biggest headache or are they the biggest um, solution
1: No, they're a joy i mean they just give us additional revenue and they give us the cash flow that we need in order to do these sorts of developments and and again you know with the turnover that we have it helps the bank see that we're you know we're not as big a risk And then the other challenge was obviously making sure I had enough value in my assets so that the banks were, you know, comfortable with my LVRs and everything else. So we took the asset from forty-six million to um, it's going to be two hundred this year, and then two hundred and fifty next year. So, um, you know, it's that that was challenging, making sure that I'm always having enough value coming through that
0: book right. in
1: order to satisfy the banks.
0: With the extra development that planned, what's what will the asset value turn out to? Do you, by the thought? end of it? Mm.
1: There's literally eight hundred million more of development. So I'll it's let very sizable, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And each stage is worth about $300 million to us as far as revenues.
0: Right. And could that be developed relatively quickly?
1: Um, it could. But, it, again, we're a very conservative board, so we tend to do a stage at a time. Right. So um, each stage will take at least two to three years. And, and you know, we didn't get everything right. We, we had certain people that maybe we shouldn't have hired on this particular job. And, um, and we'll work through that. You know, I think now we have a stronger team. And so we know how we want to move forward in the future.
0: If you look at the various things around the precinct, too, like uh, petrol stations and yeah. blues and other things, mm. will that change over time?
1: Yes. Um, interestingly enough, um, the Caltech site and the Burger King site are local central, and that allows me to go up five floors. So I could do retail and, and commercial offices, or I could do retail and residential. I have that choice. And um, if those leases were to fall over, I'd naturally start developing. But interestingly enough, it is part of my master plan anyway right. to start bringing that more into the overall site.
0: Mm. And what about down south in the in the southern piece that yes. you've got? What happens there?
1: Or, or are you meaning like mm. Franklin? Mm. Yes. So the 35 hectares is basically at maximum capacity right now. So one of the challenges is finding a 100-hectare block in the future and then using that as a training centre, but also having it as a plan B in case we ever did get asked to move from um, Alexandra Park, that we could actually be doing harness on that track as well. But the intent of my board and my members is obviously to stay at Alexandra Park as much as we can.
0: Because when we talk about it, I mean, it's fine with the development plan. How does the council respond to the the use of the land?
1: Yes. Well, um, in the case of Alexandra Park, I... I I know for a fact that they like my master plan and that that can be retired to a um, mixed-use development for the rest of it. For Franklin, we're just in negotiations now about whether it can become future urban, and I believe it can. Uh, You know, we have a good case for it since we're surrounded by it. So, yeah, that's not a problem for us. Is there any
0: strategy work going on with the Hannes group themselves looking at the industry saying, here are the things we've got to change. Is there a strategy? It's so group?
1: fascinating that you asked me that question because it's almost like the industry felt that it's always going to be okay. And now they're finally facing up to the fact that, no, it's not okay. And Houston, we have a problem and we're in deep unawareness <laughs> right. and we need to do something. Right. And so that is that work is actually going on strategically right now with the code.
0: And that will impact also on with the ownership. Obviously, it will impact... Immediately. So you've really got a cooperative, haven't you? Yes. Um, Which is not the easiest thing to remember. No, they're not. (laughs) So if you look back on your six years, is there anything you'd do differently? with?
1: Uh, Definitely, I would have probably understood the Constitution more before I walked in because I didn't realise that you can't sell any assets without you know member approval, and they don't want you to sell any land. And that would have helped us a little bit, but then I'm not from that ethos anyway. I like to keep the land and try and earn as much money as I can off of the asset. Um, the second thing I would have done is probably not taken the membership criticism and negativity on board. I, I did that the first couple of years because I tend to want to listen and hear how they think and try and respond or react. but. Nothing ever makes sense sometimes, <laughs> so you're just best to give up on that. And then the third thing I probably would have done is um, I there were certain people appointed to my project that I actually didn't agree that got chosen by my you know board and um, and I probably would have fought harder, but saying that, there was no moving a, a particular individual, so he was you know wanting, the people that he chose.
0: If there's someone comes into something like Harness Racing and, and, and wants to do it and wants to manage it, yeah. what's the advice?
1: Uh, the first and foremost thing is really understand your life cycle. Is it a build, hold, harvest, or divest? Right. And if it is uh, uh, Okay, so that would be my first comment. The second comment would be, what type of CEO are you? Hmm. Are you a build? CEO, a harvest CEO, a divest, you know, what, what are you? And um, because that will then adopt what sort of stance you take within the organization and what you have to concentrate on to get your board across the line and to get your members across the line. Um, The next thing I would say is never, ever, ever listen to all the noise, because there's always going to be the noise in a In a membership-based organization, you just have to do what's best for the company and make sure that you keep people informed and try and take them along with you as much as possible by showing your face, talking to them, listening to their objections and trying to counter those objections.
0: In a membership or cooperative type like this, there comes a period where uh, you've done the development, the business is looking good, there's money in the bank. And instead of moving to the next step, there's a tendency, isn't there, to say, let's protect what we've got and hold here. Is that something that features a little bit in the...
1: It is right now, which is a true danger to the strategy.
0: Because it can hold you up long enough to really impact on you later on, can't it?
1: Correct. And also the venues are getting more and more behind market. And if we don't keep moving this this project forward, we're going to be so far behind market that it's going to start to affect our hospitality business and our racing. Right. So. You know, this is the next big challenge. <laughs> so,
0: what would you do if you owned it yourself and it wasn't a cooperative? Would you put a sound shell in Alexandra Park?
1: <laughs> a sound shell? Yes, and have
0: <laughs> and have uh, venues for concerts, etc.
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm very entrepreneurial, so I have Cirque du Soleil that comes, and they were all screaming at me, but it's great. It's in the car park, and it works. and And we have a new event that's starting in our stables, which is going to be an annual event, and it's a festival. and And yeah, I am very much about. Let's bring life into the old girl. She was really, really looking, you know, old and right. she needs to be regenerated. And most importantly, I want Alexandra Park to be a major destination in Auckland. Right. Mm. So,
0: what happens in, in, in your thoughts I mean, going forward from you in the next 10 years? What, what does Dom do in the next 10 years?
1: Um, I'm happy with anything that gives me a challenge and that's a big and complex and diverse portfolio. I'm not good when I'm bored. Nice. And I don't like just maintaining a seat to just collect a paycheck.
0: So if you don't read around the fireside in the evening, what do you do to unwind?
1: <laughs> um, I'm I'm fascinated by people. I enjoy listening to people, their stories, their backgrounds. I like going out, traveling and meeting new people. And and I'm just a person that I am um, I find fun in anything I do.
0: Tell me, if the harness clubs around the world, and you mentioned Parts of Australia mm-hmm. is it just Australia and New Zealand or is it much wider spread than oh, that oh no
1: it's wider spread than that but interestingly enough I've been approached by China who now want to open up a harness racing track um, just outside of um, Beijing and so they were asking me whether I wanted to go up there and help them start this. And I said, well, no, but the club will help you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> so that's quite exciting because they're um, opening up their gambling um, up there and um, wanting to extend their Hong Kong type, uh, you know, jockey club type model throughout.
0: You've mentioned a couple of times casinos and, of course, this, mm. the, the activity you've got yourself. Is casino and gambling pretty much tied to harness racing?
1: It is, but does it need to be? I mean, I have an audience of over 100,000 people that come, and they wouldn't even care that the racing's on, but it just gives them an atmosphere. And they're there really more for the theme night and for drinking with their, you know, their fellow workers and enjoying their night with each other so yeah it's a
0: nighttime activity as opposed to a daytime activity
1: yes it is for us Um, but there is a lot of daytime racing as well new zealand's awesome i think i'm very privileged to live here it's almost like living in canada but you know more laid back it's fantastic i love it
0: thank you very much for joining us thank
1: you i really enjoyed it thank
0: you good to talk thank you for joining me and my guest in this high altitude conversation If you enjoyed the show, please share this with your C-suite colleagues and rate the show on iTunes if you will. In the meantime, go well.